Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the British Academy. My name is Alan Evans. I'm Chief Executive of the British Academy. Before we start, I've just got to tell you that there are no fire alarms planned this afternoon, but if there is one, the way out is via that door you came in and then follow the green sign down the stairs and outside. I'm sure you'll be fine. Uh, it's a very great pleasure to welcome you here to the, the British Academy. The British Academy, for those of you who don't know, is the National Academy promoting and championing the humanities and the social sciences and all that they contribute to understanding of the nation, the world and the society today. And we firmly believe within the Academy that the key issues, the challenges of today, domestically and internationally, be it from climate change to productivity, from the ageing society to the challenges of the uh, Middle East and beyond, can all be solved and tackled and, in, and interrogated by using all the disciplines from the sciences and the technologies across all of the humanities and social sciences and taking some of the great challenges facing Britain today, such as Brexit, that will not be solved by science and technology. It will be solved by an understanding of politics, economics, philosophy, history of ideas, international law and international relations. So the Academy is about contributing to and informing the big issues of the day. And I think today, in particular, 2nd of November, there are no bigger issues than the Balfour Declaration. There have been lots of news, as you'll have heard, and lots of media coverage, and we're very pleased to be involved with uh, this seminar today. Uh, the Academy is responsible for the study of history, the implications, the use of evidence and analysis to understand uh, where we're going, how things have happened, and what might happen in the future. And that's why this seminar means a lot to, to the Academy. In addition, the Academy has a very strong connection with Lord Balfour, Arthur Balfour himself. Lord Balfour, I'm sure most of you know, was Prime Minister from uh, 1903 to uh, 1905, 1902 to 1905. He was also Foreign Secretary from 1916 to 1919, during which time the Balfour Declaration was signed. But from a purely parochial view, and more importantly from our point of view, he was President of the British Academy from 1921 to 1928, as indeed was um, Adam Roberts for much later on. But uh, uh, Arthur Balfour was actually president of the Academy for seven years, which is the longest that anyone has held the, the position. So there is a strong connection between the Academy and Arthur Balfour, and his portrait hangs in this building uh, downstairs. The Balfour Declaration was sent to Lord Rothschilds, and indeed Lord Rothschilds' relative, the current Lord Rothschilds, is indeed an honorary fellow of the British Academy. So there are many connections with the Academy and link back to, to Balfour. And now, 100 years on, we are delighted to be uh, engaged in this seminar, which will be hosted by the Council for British Research in Levant, CBRL, which is one of the institutes that the Academy part funds. So, 100 years ago, those 67 words uh, contributed to history. They are still contributing to history. And I think this seminar this afternoon will be a fascinating interrogation of what they were and what they contribute where they are now and what might happen in the future. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome you again to the Academy, to this seminar, and to hand over to James Watt, who is Chairman of the CBRL, who's going to introduce on behalf of CBRL. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helen. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to extend a warm welcome to all of you on behalf of CBRL as well, the Council for British Research in the Levant. Uh, our history goes back almost 100 years now to the foundation 
of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem in 1919. Since then, we've grown and spread, and we've added many more subjects. We now cover the whole of the social sciences and the humanities uh, in, the, in the region, of, which is roughly formed by historic Palestine, Transjordan, Jordan, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and Cyprus. And we are um, uh, working very closely, of course, and under the, with the same remit as the, as the British Academy. Uh, we look forward very much to this event, and I want to thank our, our chairman and our three speakers for agreeing to come and to, and, and to enable this to happen. Um, so two of our speakers have come quite far. Jonathan Schneer has come all the way from Georgia, US. Victor Catan has come from uh, Singapore, National University, where he's teaching. Our third speaker, Rosemary Hollis, has come all the way from, I think, uh, the, other side of <laughs> the other side of London. But uh, it's great to have you all. Um, this is the first of what we hope will be a series of centenary uh, events, uh, lectures or conferences, because, as you can see, we're coming into a, a, an important series of these, uh, of these centenaries, um, and we are looking ahead to Paris Peace Conference, I suppose, uh, the... Uh, events in Syria, the um, Arab political uh, conference in Damascus in 1919 before the French mandate was imposed, uh, events in Egypt in 1919, um, and of course uh, other parts of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire in the Arab world uh, as they were affected by the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the changes that followed the, uh, at the end of the First World War. So um, it's really, this is a, a wonderful way to start that series. It's a very important event, as, as Alan has said, an important uh, anniversary. Uh, we've got a lot to discuss, so I shall hand over now. Um, thank you again for coming. And Alan, may I hand over to you? Thank you. First of all, Warm thanks to uh, James for being the prime instigator of uh, this event and uh, planning it so carefully. Um, the subject of the Balfour Declaration is certainly high explosive, handled with care. Uh, and at this centenary, it's worth thinking a little bit about what we can usefully do in regard to this extremely contentious matter um, uh, in the academy. Uh, and it's worth recognizing, first of all, very frankly, that it is the subject of disagreements of a very strong kind. And in no way, as it were, in no way should we wish to brush over them or to treat the uh, Balfour Declaration simply as uh, another Foreign Office uh, message. Um, but I do think that there are questions that are worth looking at quite a lot, and we will come to them in the course of our discussion, questions on which uh, we may still lack uh, knowledge or judgment. Uh, to what extent was the Balfour Declaration a product of push, as it were, uh, on the part of the Zionist Federation or pull on the part of the Foreign Office. Um, there's the uh, question of how knowledgeable about Palestine 
those who actually negotiated and agreed the terms of the Balfour Declaration were. I see that the um, first draft of the Balfour Declaration was drafted on the notepaper, very appropriately, of the Imperial Hotel in London. And um, uh, the, the question of whether the gentlemen, and they were gentlemen, gathered at the Imperial Hotel or in other discussions had uh, knowledge of the particular area and so on is, uh, remains an interesting uh, one. Um, the question also arises as to the extent to which Foreign Office officials were or were not happy with the Balfour Declaration and did or did not do their best to implement it or had to recognise other pressures on them. I could go on, but you get the drift that there are issues which may be well worth exploring in the course of our uh, discussions. Alan Evans has mentioned um, Lord Balfour's role as president of this academy. Uh, I should just mention uh, two things about him. Uh, first, he managed to get through seven years of being president of the British Academy without ever giving an annual address. Uh, the rest of us mundane characters when we've served in this office have felt obliged to give an annual uh, address. Uh, so how he got away with that, I'm not entirely uh, sure. Indeed, how he got away with being president for seven years when uh, the appointment was only ever for one. But somehow uh, he did. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that while he was president, he gave a celebrated series of lectures in Scotland, if not in, in, in at the Academy, um, called the Gifford Lectures, which have generally had a concern with theology in some form. Uh, and um, if you read about him on the Gifford Lecture site, and beware of giving the Gifford Lectures, because you might end up being criticised in the same terms, it, it says there, his tutors never thought him to be particularly gifted, due in part to his poor penmanship, which often resulted in terse examination answers deemed shallow by comparison to other students. Yet any concern for Balfour's intellect was quickly dismissed once he began utilising the services of an amanuensis. And no doubt by the time it came to the writing of the uh, declaration, he was using an amanuensis. But that uh, interesting criticism of him is worth uh, noting. Now, uh, that's enough from me by way of introduction, other than to say that our proceedings, it is planned, are on the record. It will help if any of you asking a question could say who you are at the beginning uh, of that question. Um, and if any of you have said anything wildly embarrassing, uh, made any reference to recent Hollywood events or anything like that, um, we might be able to uh, uh, edit them out, but otherwise the plan is that it would be available on the website of the uh, Council for British Research uh, in the uh, Levant. Um, I'm going to introduce the speakers one by one as the, uh, their turn comes, uh, but first we welcome Jonathan Schneer, who is a modern British historian at the Georgia Institute of Technology and uh, 
most relevant to us today. He's produced many remarkable books, but most relevant to us is he is the author of a book published in 2010, uh, The Balfour Declaration, The Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please give Jonathan a warm welcome. I'm going to just... Um, I have a, a mic on me, is it? Do, I, should, I should keep it on despite these microphones, okay? Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for coming. Thank you, James Watt, wherever you are, I don't see you, for arranging this and inviting me. And Rachel Telfer, who uh, expedited all my arrangements with ease and grace. And also, thank you, Rosemary Hollis, for being the person who uh, suggested I come in the first place. Um, my understanding is that I should spend 45 minutes or so um, explaining the history of the Balfour Declaration. So that is my plan. <clears throat> and I bring you back to November 2, 1917, exactly 100 years ago, with World War I still raging, a charnel house on the Western Front, Russia just about out of the war, the United States in it, but not in um, numbers sufficient to make a difference in Europe. Nobody knew who would win that war. And the prospects for the Allies um, were not um, splendid. It would have taken a rash person to predict with confidence that one side or the other would win. That is the context for the Balfour Declaration of November 2, 1917. And I think everyone in the room knows that by that declaration, Britain promised to look with favor upon the establishment of a home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Today, um, the declaration is seen by some as the foundation stone of modern Israel, well, by everybody, as a foundation stone of modern Israel, and therefore as something to be celebrated. But it is seen by many others as the first step towards Arab dispossession and misery, and therefore as something to be deplored. Uh, historians tend to view it as um, the byproduct of um, growing Anglo-Zionist intimacy during the war. And most books about the Declaration, they point to various motivations uh, on the part of the British government, but they all celebrate the remarkable campaign led by the Zionist leader in Great Britain, Chaim Weizmann, who taught his principles uh, of Zionism to the British governing elite. Weizmann was indeed a remarkable figure. Without discounting his extraordinary qualities and talents, however, I have learned in my research to emphasize not the inevitability of his triumph, but its contingency. The Balfour Declaration nearly didn't happen, and moreover, it wasn't written in stone. Even after it was um, issued to the public, 
the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, was prepared to finesse it under certain circumstances. 1914, Palestine, let me just see, there we go. Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, which of course was centered in Turkey and whose capital was Constantinople. The empire included most of the Middle East, it included Mesopotamia, it included Syria, which included in those days Lebanon and Palestine, the Arabian Peninsula, and Egypt, although Egypt was um, only ostensibly under their control. Britain really controlled Egypt in 1914. They had done so since 1882. The Ottoman Empire was ruled by a revolutionary political party called the uh, Committee of Union and Progress, CUP, which was dominated by three men, Enver, Talat, and Jamal. You'll be hearing a little bit about them. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was ruled by a sultan who was also the Islamic caliph, and the sultan was the puppet of those um, of the CUP. Now, <clears throat> historically, Britain had interests in the Middle East, largely because of the Suez Canal, and the French also had long-standing interests uh, in the Middle East, especially in Syria and Lebanon. In 1914, the ruler of uh, the Hejaz, which is today essentially um, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, was the Grand Sharif Hussein. He was dependent upon the Ottoman Sultan. He was also a descendant of Muhammad. And second to the Caliph, he was judged to be, I think, the second most prestigious and important Muslim uh, because he ruled Mecca and Medina, Islam's two holiest cities. The Grand Sharif in 1914 nourished ambitions, autonomy within the Ottoman Empire, or possibly even he was dreaming taller dreams than that already. Now, during the years before World War I, various groups um, had begun to emerge within the Ottoman Empire, demanding autonomy at least. The first Arab Nationalist Congress met in Paris in 1913, <clears throat> and in that year... Hussein sent his son, one of his four sons, Abdullah, to ask for British support um, if he should rebel against the Ottoman Empire. Um, Abdullah spoke with the British Consul General in Cairo, who you all have heard of, I'm sure, um, um, Horatio Kitchener, and then also with this man, Sir Ronald Storrs, who was Kitchener's Oriental Secretary. And the essence of the discussion was, will you help us if we rebel against the Ottomans? Will you give us money and machine guns? And they turned him down. They turned him down because Britain wanted to retain friendly relations with the Ottomans. But then came the outbreak of World War I, and the British feared, quite correctly, that the Ottomans would side with Germany, and then they faced a nightmare scenario. 
because, as I was just learning at lunch today, Britain was then the largest Muslim empire in the world with 100 million Muslim subjects in the Sudan, in South Asia, in Egypt. Um, what if the Ottoman caliph in Constantinople declared a jihad in the war, a jihad against the British? That was a fearful prospect. And Kitchener, who was now in London as the war was just breaking out, um, and Storrs, who was in Cairo, recalled their discussions uh, with Abdullah the previous year, and they rethought their position. Perhaps Britain should help um, the Arabs after all. Um, because if the Grand Sharif did rebel against the Ottoman Empire, the second holiest figure in the Islamic world, then that might blunt uh, a jihad if the caliph should call one. Um, so Kitchener directed stores to get back in touch with the Grand Sharif and his family. We will support you if you rebel. Um, and they even dangled in front of the Grand Sharif the possibility that they would support his claims to becoming caliph of all Islam, which was not a gift within their power to bestow, and which is an index, in fact, of their um, desperation at this point. And so began a fateful correspondence during 1915 and 16. Kitchener's replacement, temporary replacement in Egypt, was this man, Sir Henry McMahon. And I chose this particular depiction of him um, because I would suggest to you that possibly, I'm not sure, but possibly the face is not a frank face. Um, McMahon, McMahon uh, and Hussein embarked upon a correspondence, one of the most infamous in all of history. And McMahon uh, promised to support, promised British support of an independent Arab kingdom if Hussein should indeed rebel and Hussein would be its leader. Well, what would be the boundaries of this kingdom? And here, an enormous amount depends upon the translation of certain English words into Arabic and how Hussein understood them. And historians have parsed those letters with a fine-tooth comb and have come to no agreement. Essentially, Zionists and supporters of McMahon have concluded that the British meant to exclude Palestine from the envisioned prospective Arab kingdom. On the other side, Arabs and critics of McMahon say that Palestine was to be included in the kingdom. Well, I wouldn't begin to claim that I can settle this argument. Um, but what I do know is that McMahon used intentionally vague language in his correspondence with Hussein. And he admitted as much in a letter to his former chief in India, who is now 
uh, I think the permanent undersecretary or permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, whose name was Lord Harding. And these are the words of McMahon in a letter to Harding about the correspondence he was conducting. Quote, what we have to arrive at now is to tempt the Arab people into the right path, detach them from the enemy, and bring them onto our side. This, on our part, is at present largely a matter of words. And to succeed, we must use persuasive terms and abstain from academic haggling over conditions. And McMahon was successful. Hussein launched the Arab rebellion against Turkey in June 1916. <clears throat> now, back in London, the British government realized it had better bring its French allies into the picture, and it deputed Sir Marx Sykes, who was an advisor to the government on Middle Eastern affairs, to speak for them. And the French chose to represent them, François-Georges Picot. And the two men met at the Foreign Office in London with maps and crayons. And assuming that Great Britain would defeat the Ottomans in the war, they began redrawing the Middle Eastern map. And very broadly, France was to control Syria, and they colored it blue. And Britain, after the war, was to control Mesopotamia, and they colored it red, um, and they called those areas A and B. Palestine, with Jerusalem, with Jerusalem, they considered to be somehow sui generis, and they agreed it should be controlled by an international condominium, and they colored it brown on the map. As for the Arab kingdom promised to Hussein... Sykes and Pico decided that he should cede primacy to France in one part of it and to Britain in the other. And in those two uh, areas, the Grand Sharif must accept their advice. But they never told him this. The Sykes-Pico um, agreement is an example of old-fashioned European imperialism. So, at British prompting and with British help, Hussein proceeded with a rebellion against Turkey. He may or may not have thought Palestine would be part of his new kingdom. That remains slightly contentious. But he certainly did know, uh, he certainly did not know, that in any event, the European allies had established the boundaries of his future kingdom for him and their own roles within it. I'm a British historian, not a French historian. Um, I know that the British deceit drove crazy certain essential British figures on the spot, which I think much to their credit. And the most famous example is T.E. Lawrence. Um, and I chose this depiction also with a purpose because I think he looks possibly troubled um, in it. Here is what he once wrote to one of his superiors, speaking of the Arabs. 
We are getting them to fight for us on a lie, and I can't stand it. Now, back in London, another group took profound interest in Palestine. Zionists said that Palestine, which had been the homeland of the ancient Jews, should be its homeland again. It was currently part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans wouldn't give it back to them. In 1897, an Austrian journalist, Herzl, founded the World Zionist Federation. And first, the Zionists attempted to persuade the Ottomans to um, give it back. Uh, They had no luck. Their next goal was to try to persuade one of the great powers to pressure the Turks on their behalf. And again, they were not successful. In 1914... Zionism had a world organization with headquarters in Berlin, but Zionism was weak in Great Britain. The British total population was something over 40 million. The Jewish population was around 300,000. Of the 300,000, 8,000 belonged to one or another Zionist organization. Most British Jews in 1914 thought that the Zionists were impractical dreamers. I don't think they were overtly unfriendly to the ideas of Zionism so much as too busy earning a living, getting along with their lives, to pay much attention to them. That there was much latent support for Zionism would become apparent later. So, to sum up at this point, through the McMahon-Hussein correspondence, the British won Arab support um, in World War I. They allowed them to think, mistakenly, that Great Britain would support the establishment of an independent Arab kingdom. Historians and partisans have argued whether the Arabs believed from the outset that Palestine would be part of that Arab kingdom. But it's indisputable that McMahon was intentionally vague about this and about other matters. Simultaneously, the British were winning Zionist support by promising to support establishment of a home for the Jewish people in Palestine, and this they did unambiguously in the famous Balfour Declaration. So the Jews wound up thinking they would inherit Palestine. They had it in writing. Arabs thought Palestine probably would form part of an independent Arab kingdom, and they had it in writing in McMahon's intentionally vague letters. The British were sowing dragon's teeth here, creating future problems. But there's another dimension to the tale, uh, which actually constitutes my main contribution to the historiography, and one that further complicates the picture. From the moment that Turkey entered the war, there were British people who wanted to arrange a separate peace with Turkey. Now, understand, the Zionists believed Turkish control of Palestine was their greatest obstacle. They wanted total victory over Turkey, an institution of a British protectorate there, and then free immigration for Jews. So most Zionists were unalterably opposed to a separate peace with the Ottoman Empire. 
Well, so were the Arabs, and for a similar reason. They had embarked upon uh, a rebellion, and they would not have looked well upon the British organizing a separate peace, and then, obviously, uh, the Arabs leaving the Arabs out in the cold. Who in Britain favored the separate peace? There were British Muslims, a small community in this country, uh, and lacking political influence. These people thought it a tragedy that the British Empire, which governed 100 million Muslim subjects, should war with the Ottoman Muslim Empire. But British... Muslims had minimal influence, political influence, in 1914. More significant were British Turkophiles who believed uh, that their country should return to Disraeli's old policy, which was to maintain the Ottoman Empire as a bulwark against Russian expansion, especially into the Mediterranean Sea. Wait a second. I got my pages um, in the wrong number. Um, So I'll just continue. You've all missed page five. I don't know what I was going to... Let me just say briefly about page five. Um, What I meant to do was to to introduce you to um, um, the British Zionists. Um, First of all, there were anti-Zionist Jews in Britain, um, led by this journalist, a man called Lucien Wolfe. Um, assimilationists believe that Judaism is not, um, that Jews do not constitute a separate people or a race, um, that uh, they merely share a belief system which can be practiced anywhere, and therefore that uh, Jews should assimilate in the countries uh, in which they live. The Zionists uh, in Britain were led, of course, by Chaim Weizmann, who um, was pretty well known in the Zionist organization, but not very well known yet in Great Britain. Weizmann was a Russian chemist trained in Berlin, trained um, in Switzerland, but now a reader in chemistry at Manchester University. And he emerged as the great Zionist leader during World War I. Why did he? Because he was a diplomat of genius. He was able to charm the British governing elite and teach them the principles of Zionism and to persuade them that all the Jews who counted in Great Britain were Zionists, which clearly was not the truth. Um, Moreover, he could practice a kind of political jujitsu. Um, there were British people who said, you Jews represent a subterranean, powerful world influence. Uh, you can perhaps control American finance and persuade President Wilson to come into the war. You, can, you Russian Jews can uh, persuade the Russian government to stay in the war. And basically what Weizmann said was, you're right, we do have this enormous influence and you need us now more than ever. And saying that, British leaders drew the logical conclusion. They needed Jewish support to win the war, to gain Jewish support, 
They needed to win over the Zionists, and to win over the Zionists, they had to give them Palestine. Hence, the Balfour Declaration. All right. Then I began to sum up what the Arabs believed through the Hussein McMahon correspondence, what the Zionists believed as a result of Weizmann's workings with the British um, governing elite. Okay, now we come to my original contribution to the advocates of a separate peace with Turkey. British Muslims, who, as I say, had little influence, then British Turkophiles, who had more influence and who wanted the government to return to traditional policies supporting Turkey against the Russians, and also some of whom said we need to be allied with modern progressive Turkey, not with backward tyrannical czarist Russia. Now, these British Turkophiles did have influence. They organized an Anglo-Ottoman association, which was a political pressure group that recruited important members of parliament from various political parties from both houses of parliament. They recruited men of letters, businessmen, and so on. And then there was yet a third group of, um, uh, that we have to look to who believe in a separate peace with Turkey, and they are the so-called Easterners. The Easterners believed that the war could not be won on the Western Front, that the Western Front was simply a meat grinder of men, and that a back door had to be found, and that that door was in Turkey, and then that either it could be kicked open or it could be opened by the Turks themselves through some sort of an arrangement. The most famous of the Easterners was Winston Churchill, and he persuaded the government to back the ill-fated attempt to open up the Straits of the Dardanelles, that is to say, to kick the door in. But when that failed, the Easterners began to think more seriously about a secret arrangement with Turkey to get her out of the war by negotiation. And in my book, I trace the coming together of the British Muslims, the British Turkophiles, and these Easterners, and their various attempts to persuade the government to open a backdoor channel to the leaders of the Ottoman Empire. Marmaduke Pickthall made the first effort. He was the son of an Anglican vicar, but he converted to Islam. He wrote the first translation of the Quran into English. He was the author of a number of novels, uh, about life in the Ottoman Empire in which he traveled extensively and lived for uh, long periods. He wanted a separate peace with Turkey, but his efforts were stymied by Mark Sykes, whom he considered to be his friend. He was never given a passport to travel to neutral Turkey to talk to Turks. He thought he had an opportunity. The fact is, Marmaduke Pickthall uh, is unimportant in the great scheme of things, and I mention him in this talk merely because I love his name. But secondly, slightly more important, a man called J.R. Pilling, a British Turkophile businessman with significant interests in the Ottoman Empire. Now, he actually met with Lloyd George. He received a passport, and he did travel to Switzerland, and he did indeed talk with Turkish agents there. And at first, the Easterners had great hopes for J.R. Pilling, but then they found out Pilling was a rogue. He was a self-interested 
businessman, um, and the government lost faith in him and disowned him fairly quickly. Now we come to more significant examples. Henry Morgenthau, he had been the former, he was the former American ambassador to Turkey, and he too believed that there should be a way to get Turkey out of this war. He had been a real estate developer in New York. He had made a fortune. He had given a ton of money to the Democratic Party. He knew President Woodrow Wilson. And now, back from his stint as ambassador, he persuaded the president that he could talk to his friends in the Committee of Union and Progress. Now, the United States never declared war on Turkey during World War I. And so Morgenthau could travel to meet with Turks. Uh, and Wilson sent him to do it, um, but he was to meet them in Palestine, ostensibly to check while he was in Palestine on the condition of Jews there, but really to talk uh, to Turks. But Chaim Weizmann learnt of this effort. And, of course, it made him furious. He stormed into the foreign office to protest, which is an example of how important he had become that he had entree into the foreign office at all. Um, and the foreign office officials calmed him down. Why? Because they didn't smile upon the Morgenthau mission either. Why did they not? Because even someone like Chaim Weizmann could know about it. It wasn't secret enough. And if word got out that they were interested in talking with the Turks, that might signal to outside uh, people that Britain was not so confident about its prospects during the war. And so they sent Weizmann to stop Morgenthau. Um, they sent him to Gibraltar, where Morgenthau had um, stopped on his way to Palestine. And there Weizmann did it, a bravura um, um, performance. He dominated and humiliated Morgenthau in several sessions and persuaded him to call off his mission entirely. And Morgenthau simply beat it back to the United States with his tail between his legs. However, literally at the same time, literally at the same time, the Foreign Office was arranging for another extraordinary figure, Aubrey Herbert, to sound out the Turks on a separate piece. While they were stopping Morgenthau from sounding out the Turks on a separate piece, they were sending Herbert to do it. Um, Weizmann never knew about this mission. Now, Herbert is one of my favorite historical figures. He was the second son of the Earl of Carnarvon and therefore the half-brother of the discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Uh, he was also the model of John Buchan's Sandy Arbuthnot, uh, who is the hero of the great thriller Green Mantle. Um, Herbert, too, knew the Ottoman Empire very well. He had spent a lot of time before the war in Albania, where he uh, got to know people from all walks of life. Apparently, he rode in the hills of Albania with Albanian bandits. But simultane not simultaneously, shortly thereafter, 
he was offered the Albanian throne. He was twice offered the Albanian throne, and he wanted to accept it, but the foreign office would never let him. Um, he was a war hero, uh, the first member of parliament to have been wounded in battle in France. He was a conservative member of parliament. Now he travels to Switzerland, ostensibly to recover from war wounds. And there in Switzerland, he did in fact meet with Turks, met them in safe houses. He picked up messages on railway platforms. Uh, It is as good as a John Buchan thriller. And he returned with proposals from dissident Turks who promised that they would overthrow the Committee of Union and Progress and take Turkey out of the war if they had British support. And he reported to Lloyd George and Balfour, who were in Paris, where they were meeting other of the Allied leaders. Um, He reported to them in a hotel two days after these same two men had received Weizmann. They had congratulated Weizmann on stopping the separate peace initiative launched by Morgenthau. Now they were congratulating Aubrey Herbert on starting the separate peace initiative uh, with dissident Turks. Lloyd George, a confirmed Easterner, and he could not get the idea of a separate peace out of his head. He never knew about Marmaduke Pickthall, He learned to distrust J.R. Pilling. He opposed the Morgenthau mission for reasons I've explained. And now he had doubts about Aubrey Herbert because Herbert was talking to dissidents. He calls them second-raters. That is, Lloyd George calls them that. His chosen instrument for pursuing a separate peace with Turkey, therefore, was not Aubrey Herbert or any of the other names I've mentioned, but rather the most infamous arms dealer of the period, Basil Zaharoff. Basil Zaharoff um, is the stock cartoon villain in the Tintin comics. Um, Some of you may remember a, a British television series about Riley Ace of Spies in which Basil Zaharoff figures. He's an extraordinary figure. As a boy in Constantinople, uh, he had been a kind of an advertiser for a brothel. He graduated from that to working for the fire department of Constantinople, setting fires um, in order to share in the loot afterwards. Uh, He was a bigamist. He was a thief. um, But he found his metier as an arms dealer. Um, and he made an enormous fortune. Now, earlier in the war, Zaharoff had been contacted by a man called Abdul Karim, who was the former Turkish minister to Greece and Austria. Zaharoff remembered him well. He had bribed him often before the war. Uh, And to cut short a long, complicated, wonderful story, uh, Abdul Karim told Zaharoff that he represented Enver Pasha, one of the three leaders of the CUP and of the Ottoman Empire, and that Enver was willing willing to make a deal with the British for a separate peace. And Zaharoff brought this message to Lloyd George. 
And, of course, Enver Pasha was not a second-rater, as the men Aubrey Herbert had been dealing with. And so Lloyd George empowered Basil Zaharoff to meet Abdul Karim in Switzerland to find out what Turkey's terms for a separate peace would be. Now, the Foreign Office and the War Office knew about J.R. Pilling's efforts. The Foreign Office and the Cabinet knew of Aubrey Herbert's efforts. I am... Let me put it this way. Only Lloyd George, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Andrew Bonar Law, um, and maybe one or two others knew about Basil Zaharoff. You may ask, why did Bonar Law know? And the reason is that because he was the Chancellor and he would be in charge of arranging the multi-million dollar bribe that the British government thought would be necessary to grease the wheels in getting Turkey out of the war. A number of people would be bribed who were in very important parts. And then also the leaders of the, of the um, plot um, would move to New York City with $12 million. Um, but Balfour, Lord George's foreign secretary, head of the foreign office, did not know about this. So let me try to um, unfold the layers of intrigue we have now come upon. Number one, the Zionists would have been outraged to learn about the various missions that I've just described, the peace missions to Turkey, because a separate peace with Turkey would have allowed the Turks to maintain control of Palestine. They knew only about Morgenthau's effort, which they had defeated. Now, of course, the Arabs who were expecting to establish an independent kingdom, would likewise have been outraged to learn about the separate peace attempts with the Ottomans uh, since they were rebelling against the Ottomans. It's also fair to point out that Aubrey Herbert would have been quite astonished to learn uh, about the Zaharoff mission um, because he thought he was representing uh, the British government in its efforts to contact Turks. And then, finally, Lloyd George didn't tell Balfour about Zaharoff's mission either. And this just as Balfour was about to put his name to the famous declaration. Uh, an even darker picture of intrigue and betrayal emerges on the British side. Now, again, I'm not a Tur I'm sorry, on the Turkish side. Uh, I'm not a Turkish historian, so my information is derived from British archives. Aside from Enver, the other great leader during this period was Talat. And at one point in the negotiations between Enver and Zaharoff, um, Zaharoff asked Abdul Karim what Enver planned for Talat. Why was Talat not involved in any of this? And Abdul Karim said of Talat. He's being a little difficult, but here's the quotation. If he continues to be difficult, here's the quotation. I myself will give him his coffee. Uh, meaning, of course, that he would poison him. Now, what he didn't know, and what Enver didn't know, but which I found out, was that, Enver, uh, was that Talat was also exploring separate peace, and that he had been behind the um, early overtures to Pickthall, Pilling, and Aubrey Herbert. Anyway, 
Zaharoff met Abdul Karim several times in Switzerland during the summer and the fall of 1917. The climax came on January 27, 1918, three months nearly after the Balfour Declaration. Enver snuck into Switzerland. Zaharoff traveled to Switzerland. They did not meet, but rather Abdul Karim shuttled between the two. He was, as Zaharoff explains in a note to Lloyd George, he was a human telephone. Lloyd George had provided Zaharoff <coughs> with British desiderata, and the crux for our purposes uh, was that his negotiating position included, quote, Palestine will not be annexed or incorporated in the British Empire. Note, this is nearly three months after publication of the Balfour Declaration. Had Enver accepted the terms that Lloyd George was suggesting, I don't think we would be here discussing the Balfour Declaration today. The Balfour Declaration would have been sidelined by history. It would be merely another of the many beautiful promises made during the war by politicians of all countries and all parties to persuade men to go on fighting and dying. It would count as much as no annexations and no indemnities, or open covenants openly arrived at, or most poignantly of all, perhaps, war to end all wars. But Enver did not accept. Why not? January 1918, he thought Turkey and Germany could still win the war. This was just as the Russians were pulling out during the negotiations at Brest-Litovsk, uh, and it's before American troops have arrived in significant numbers. The main reason why Britain and Turkey never concluded a separate peace, I think, is that whenever one party really wanted one because it could see no other way to win the war, the other party was not so interested because at that particular moment the war was going well for it. Whenever Britain was willing to zig, Turkey was about to zag. And so it continued throughout 1914 to 18. Here's my conclusion. Too often, historians have deemed the declaration which bears the name of this man to have been the inevitable product of Chaim Weizmann's brilliant campaign to educate and win over the British governing elite to the Zionist program. In fact, as I've tried to suggest, I think the Balfour Declaration was a highly contingent result of a tortuous process that might have turned out very differently. And that process was characterized as much by deceit and betrayal as by adherence to principles and liberal values. Uh, you all know the Greek myth. Cadmus slew the dragon, and by the advice of Athena, sowed its teeth. When they were sown, there rose from the, rat, from the ground armed men. During World War I, Britain sowed dragon's teeth in the Middle East, and their fruit was suspicion, resentment, recrimination, hatred. And eventually, new soldiers rose up from the ground, and as we all know, they are rising still. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, I'm happy to run away. So. If you could say who you are. suggested the Balfour may not have happened. Had that been the case, what would the position of the Sykes-Pico have been, and, and how might it have played out, in your opinion? Sorry about that. Just a little question. I don't, um, <clears throat> I don't see how they could have stuck with Sykes-Pico. The whole zeitgeist was against that kind of old-fashioned European imperialism. And I think Mark Sykes himself understood that. Um, um, and, and then, of course, as I'm, th I'm thinking on my feet, and, and so who knows if I'm right or wrong, but don't forget that the Russian revolutionaries published the um, terms of Sykes-Pico, which simply enraged everybody. Um, so... I don't think they would have... To answer your question, I don't think Sykes-Pico would have lasted. John Roberts. John Roberts. Decades ago, I wrote a book on the Middle East. Good reviews sank without trace. Um, my issue is, when you look at something like Sykes-Pico, we keep thinking that this is imperial officials writing, drawing arbitrary lines on a map. But if you look at it, there's actually a logic. Damascus and Baghdad have never really got on. They've only got on when they've been forced to get on by being under somebody else's empire. Even when you had uh, the heyday of the Ba'ath Party, the same wing of the Ba'ath Party in control of both cities... They didn't unite, they collapsed and fractured. It always strikes me that we misunderstand this antagonism between the two ends of the Fertile Crescent. And that we misunderstand that the boundaries in that area, in sort of psychological terms, have actually been there for a couple of thousand years. It was Pompey who set out the mod boundaries of modern Syria, not Sykes-Pico. And I keep wondering whether we don't take history enough into account. And I also have a sort of more general question, which is, when we look at Balfour, maybe this will come up with the other questions, the role of the United States, of Louis Brandeis, of President Wilson himself, in formulating the environment within which the Balfour Declaration was made. And I wonder whether you could uh, sort of elaborate a little bit more on the American connection. Um, <clears throat> a, a, I can elaborate a, a little. Literally, a little. Um, Weizmann and Brandeis were in contact. And um, Weit, uh, I'm sorry, um, Brandeis, everyone knows Brandeis was a Jewish Supreme Court justice in the United States. Um, 
Brandeis had entree uh, occasionally maybe to Wilson and certainly to Colonel House, who was Wilson's advisor. Um, They, I think it is true um, that possibly at possibly at Weizmann's urging, Brandeis uh, pushed House to push Wilson to, um, uh, to, to come to some decision about the Balfour Declaration. Perhaps I'm saying stuff you know well already. Um, that's pretty much my knowledge with regard to Brandeis and Wilson I don't think, uh, my sense is that um, the Balfour Declaration was not terribly important to President Wilson. Um, But Brandeis was a very, very effective advocate in the United States for the Zionists and was definitely in touch with Weizmann. And by the way, it was Brandeis who alerted Weizmann about the Morgenthau mission. I'm still, Rosemary Hollis, I'm still savouring some of the detail that you treated us to and most appreciative of it. Uh, And I don't think I missed in your speech, but nonetheless, um, I apologise if I did, but could you tell us what you learnt about the expectations and, dare I say, motivations of Balfour himself? (laughs) in that letter. I'd like to be able to say that was on the page five, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> All right, here's, here's what I, th- I think. Um, I understand um, that Balfour may have been a Christian Zionist um, and that he may have taken some kind of satisfaction in thinking that British policies were facilitating the return of Jews to Palestine because that would lead to the second coming. I do not believe that that was a significant factor in motivating him with regard to the Balfour Declaration, nor do I think that his sympathy with Jewish people uh, was, a motiv- was a significant motivating factor. It may have been there, although, of course, everybody probably in this room knows there is conflicting um, uh, evidence about his attitude towards Jewish people. But I believe that the most important motivating factor for Balfour and the entire British government was that the declaration would help them win World War I. It's realpolitik. That's what I think. Madawi yes. Rashid from the Middle East Center at the London School of Economics. Uh, thank you very much for uh, a meticulous navigation of British archives during a very complex period. I have two questions. One is historical. The other one is polemical. The first one is... Um, Uh, When you were um, discussing the fear of Britain of the caliph, the Ottoman caliph declaring jihad against the Brits, 
you don't think somebody like Balfour thought about what impact this declaration would have on British so- Muslim soldiers in, in the war? Um, um, on British soldiers, Muslim soldiers in the British army during the war. Right. I mean, as far as Singapore, there was a mutiny that probably not many Singaporeans know about, and it was related to um, uh, the caliph declaring jihad. So did, they, did he think about the implications of this on, on Muslim soldiers in the British army? Right. So that's my first question. Okay. My controversial question is, as a historian who has this deep knowledge of the period. Do you think the least that Britain could do now <laughs> is to apologize for right. the Palestinians for this betrayal? Right. With regard to your historical question, I never saw any evidence in the archives. That doesn't mean it isn't there. I never saw evidence of... There, no, I, I don't believe I ever saw discussion or position papers on the impact of the Balfour Declaration on Muslim soldiers. I do not think so. That doesn't mean it's not there. It means I never saw it. As for your um, political question, I decline to answer. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Nuzhan. I would like to hear if you could say a few words about the key interest of the U.S. government um, around 1914 and how it changed over time and what Wilson's uh, policy priorities were around 1917 and 1919. Uh, probably not. <laughs> I'm not an American historian. I'm a British historian. It's true I come from the United States, but um, I don't think, I mean, I can tell you what an American thinks. I can't tell you what a, an American historian thinks about that. My, you know, Wilson campaigned on um, in 1916 even on we'll keep, I'll, I'll keep us out of the war. I don't think, so that's a part of your answer. It, really, you're going far beyond my expertise as a British historian, so I don't want to lead you astray. Sorry. Um, John McHugo. Um, first of all, I, I would just like to say in reply to what Mr. Roberts said, I think it should be borne in mind that the Arab nationalists at the end of the First World War weren't thinking of some centralised state. They were thinking very much of a federal or a confederal model for the former Ottoman Arabic-speaking provinces. <clears throat> and, for instance, the city of Aleppo was in many senses closer to Mosul and Baghdad in terms of its trade and its uh, interests than it was to Damascus. So the whole set of boundaries that were drawn up and then revised so that Mosul was transferred from the French to the British uh, zone was actually, I think, a very backward step for the peoples of the region, particularly as it led to things such as customs barriers. But my question, if I may is um, I was very interested in what you said about the Sharif Hussein sending his son, Prince Abdullah, to Cairo um, before the war began. What was his motive in wanting British support for his revolt, for a potential revolt against the Ottomans? Was it because he wanted to become the king of a genuinely independent Hejaz, or was Arab nationalism 
that was then very much in its formative stage. And we don't really know as much as we would like because, of course, you didn't um, tell the Ottoman authorities you were an Arab nationalist. To what extent did Arab nationalism affect it, do you think? And was that in the background of the mind of the Sharif Hussein and his son? Right. Uh, thank you for um, uh, searching and, for me, very difficult question to uh, address. Um, I do know that um, the Grand Sharif Hussein was um, completely alienated from the Committee of Union and Progress. Um, and I don't have in my head precisely when the pre-war sultan is, steps down. Um, um, he had been friendly and loyal with the sultan up through, yes, yes. But not, I don't think he had the same relations with the next sultan. Um, I think that he was thinking about an independent kingdom. But I don't, I cannot cite you chapter and verse on that. And I don't think I've ever seen him, anything he wrote, saying that. But I think that was by now um, in their minds. Um, and I do know that he was asking for machine guns, specifically. So maybe for autonomy but maybe for something more. Just one quick last question, if I may. You began by emphasizing context, and especially how uncertain the outcome of the First World War right. seemed at the time. And it's often something that later generations have difficulty grasping, that a situation that seemed extremely dangerous at the time. We know we survived it. Right. So we assume that it was always going to be okay. And right. It's not necessarily how it appeared. And I'm struck... Uh, I was struck at what you said, a few hints. But in particular, there was concern about financing the war, both sides of the Atlantic, as I understand it. And um, I wondered if there was... How much was revealed in the documents you've looked at about that as a concern that was going through their minds, and possibly a belief that the, the Jewish community would be able to help them. That is, that is precisely what was going through their minds, mm -hmm. yes. Um, I, I have never gone, I've never tried to trace the money and to see, in fact, how much, um, what Jewish financiers in New York City actually were able to do mm. for the government, but I do, for the American government in the war, but I, I do know that British cabinet ministers had that very much in mind, yes. Well, I must say, as a former student at Oxford of the historian A.J.P. Taylor, I feel reinforced in the prejudice that he imparted to me in favor of the view that history consists of many contingencies, uncertainties, and um, 
great events don't always necessarily have great causes. Right. And uh, I think your, your presentation has reinforced uh, some of those interpretations of history. Thank you very much indeed for setting us all to a We now have a break for tea and we gather here again at quarter past.